Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Wednesday, April 11th. I'm Chris Hurdy. Over the next month, we're going to be featuring stories from Vice's April publication, The Dystopia and Utopia Issue. It's a really beautiful collection of stories. I highly recommend you check it out. Today, we're going to hear from journalist Jimmy Briggs on the trauma of everyday gun violence in New Orleans, a feature story which was done in collaboration with the Investigative Fund. In 2017, there were 15,613 gun homicides in the United States. That number is more than triple the number of American troops killed in the entire Iraq war. And while it isn't really surprising at this point, it does bear repeating that a large share of these deaths occur in poor, black, and brown communities. Nationally, gun violence remains the leading cause of death for young African-American men. And while it's widely understood that soldiers returning from war zones are at risk for PTSD, it's a lot less explored how the stress and trauma from exposure to this kind of violence affects communities right here in the U.S. Journalist Jimmy Briggs looked closely at this issue in New Orleans, and what he saw was a vast, undiagnosed epidemic of PTSD plaguing young men of color. Here's Vice's Ankita Rao speaking with Jimmy on the story. We don't often think of post-traumatic stress disorder when we think of local community gun violence. How did you come across the story, and how did you choose who you would focus it on? This story is about a young man who's now 23 years old, named Caswick Navarro. Caswick is a resident of New Orleans, um, originally from a neighboring community called Morgan City. And in his relatively short life, Caswick has gone through a journey of extraordinary complex trauma, drug addiction, drug selling, violence surrounding him and also sometimes perpetrated by him. And this story for me and for the photographer with whom I worked is important because the opportunity to focus on one young man such as Caswick Navarro allowed us to talk about this epidemic of, of trauma, of traumatic stress, and in some cases PTSD in communities throughout the country. And by, by really focusing over Caswick over the past year and a half, our goal was to really humanize this concept of urban trauma as experienced by young men, especially young men of color. This is an incredibly relevant topic right now. And I think the post-traumatic stress of living in a community with gun violence can apply to so many places across the country. How did you choose to focus on New Orleans? Well, actually, the choice is made for me in a certain way. My best friend and photographer, Andrew Lambertson, who shot the pictures for the story, he had been working in New Orleans with different nonprofit organizations, using photography, using videography, to work with young men like Kasbik, who are trying to transition their lives away from violence, away from drugs, away from crime, to really recreate a narrative for themselves, other than the ones they've normally been taught. And so, in the course of his work with these different nonprofits in New Orleans, 
Andre Lambertson discovered Caswick for himself in a program he was working in. And so he reached out to me and told me about Caswick and, you know, urged me to work with him on doing a story about Caswick's life as we were talking about trauma and PTSD among young urban men of color. And Caswick's story is incredibly intense. And as you're learning about him, you just can't believe that somebody that young has gone through so many things. Did you find that his story was representative of that community? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because I, I felt like, you know, having been a journalist for some time now, I had seen and heard stories such as Caswick's many times before, but I never really focused on one individual over a period of time as my colleague and I did did with him in this case. And so for me, you know, it was really an opportunity to to go deeper and really immerse myself into someone's life over a period of time. And in doing so, not only earning a higher degree of trust and rapport, but also really kind of understanding how the complexity of trauma works. So it, in Kaz's case, it was violence, but it was also housing instability, food insecurity, fatherlessness, all these different factors really impacted the journey he ended up taking in his, his young life. Reporting on this kind of trauma can sometimes feel there's just a lot of gray area. There's a lot of you're wondering if whether you're too invasive and how much this person wants to share. Could you tell me how you built that relationship with him? You know, my first encounters with Cash, I have to admit, were Kazbek. I, I say Cash because he always called himself Cash Rami, but, but Kazbek or Cash, my first encounters with him, I have to admit, were very tentative. Um, I wasn't sure how far to push. He had a relationship with the photographer, Andre Lemerson. So to a certain degree, I had, you know, had someone to vouch for me with him. I mean, it wasn't like I was a stranger coming in from out of the blues to document his life. He knew I was coming. He knew I would be asking him questions. He knew that to tell his story, I would be pushing the envelope, maybe in some ways beyond what he was most comfortable with. But initially, our first contact was really me observing him, listening, watching, trying to understand the rhythms of his day-to-day life, as well as understand what made him feel comfortable observing the moments where he felt least tense, where he was most open. And, you know, I think because I had the, the gift of, of time, I didn't have a tight deadline. I could take, you know, weeks and days and months meeting him in person, but also texting him, calling him on the phone from New York to New Orleans where he lives. And so I think it was the formal and informal conversations we had that really kind of created a, a level of trust and rapport but also, I think for my part, um, if I can, can admit, uh, an affection for him. You know, I, I felt beyond, you know, beyond being a writer or a journalist documenting his life, you know, I, I quickly enough cared about him. And so at times, you know, I really had to remind myself, yes, you can care about him. He's a compelling young man. But at the same time, you have a job to do. You're a journalist. And you have to, sometimes those lines get blurred. But I felt in this, in this situation, the lines were blurred, but not not to the point where my uh, objectivity or my the rigor with which I reported the story was compromised. I think one of the interesting things you bring up in the piece is also that stories like Caswick's are very different than the kind of response we see to the trauma in places like Sandy Hook or uh, more recently Parkland. These stories often, they don't have that kind of direct emergency response and not that you can really compare one trauma to another, but how do you think that the conversation we're having as a country right now around gun violence plays into this kind of story? I so, so appreciate you asking that question because, frankly speaking, it's, it's, it's a question that I've been grappling with and pulling apart since the Parkland shooting in Florida. 
that incident actually happened as we were in the process of editing the story and fact-checking it, as I was in the process of rewriting certain parts. And so for me, it just felt very resonant to observe what had happened in, in Parkland and watching the students be catalyzed towards activism by what they experienced and what they survived. And, you know, to be sure, I, I, I look at them and, and watch them with great respect and admiration, inspiration even, for how they were able to turn this profound uh, tragedy into really a call, a call to action, a call for a national dialogue for transformation around the way we think about and talk about guns and gun violence. At the same time, it was kind of bittersweet for me as well because as I was watching the news and learning more about what happened in Florida, you know, Caswick was very much on my mind, you know, not just because we were finalizing the story, but also the realization that there are thousands of Caswicks across this country, thousands of young men, black, Hispanic, uh, immigrant, poor and white, who experience gun violence, who experience violence on a daily basis, whose trauma is not just dependent on gun violence and the violence in their lives, but also a host of other factors tied to socioeconomic disparity, whether it's housing, poor education, hunger for food, joblessness, all these different factors work to confine so many young men into the conditions in which they were born and which they find themselves really imprisoned. And so, you know, watching the energy and the affirmation of the youth in Parkland and their emerging activism, I had Kazakh in my mind and, and, and really hoped and still hope to a certain degree that America can not only have a conversation around gun violence, but also recognize the everyday violence, the everyday trauma endured by people like Kazbik. My fear is that what he goes through and so many other women go through in this country, we become numb to it. We expect it. We, we, we normalize it. You know, we may hear about a shooting in a place like New Orleans where he lives or New York City or in some other urban metropolis across the country. We, we expect these things to happen to these people who live in these communities. And for me, that, that's my greatest concern, that we have to be able to talk about guns and violence in this country in a way that includes the Caswicks, as well as the young people at a school like when we saw in Florida. I think your story in a lot of ways serves to do that, right? Like it, it, I think focusing on PTSD, for example, gives it this kind of different lens and says like, hey, you haven't looked at this yet. And I think that's really interesting. I think that PTSD being as misunderstood as it is, is inherently interesting here because people of color in the health system often get much poorer health care and access and people don't listen to them as much. People don't take them as seriously when it comes to mental health. How did you see the interactions with mental health playing into the story as well? Mental health, both in equity of the mental health care system in this country at large, but also the mental health system's treatment or lack thereof with young men such as Kazbek was very evident. I, I think, and this was borne out by a number of people with whom I spoke with for the story, but also Kazbek himself in terms of how the early signs of his, of his trauma were misconstrued as bad behavior or boys being boys or, you know, the underlying assumption that this is how young boys, young men of color behave in certain situations, whether it's educational, um, the workplace, and so forth. There are several factors that feed into the mental health care disparity in this country, and, and Kazbek is so evident of that. A big part of it is racial. I think a big part of it is socioeconomic. And I know in Kazbek's experience, there were non-governmental programs which did offer some degree of mental health care psychosocial support. 
But in terms of the formal institutions where you look to, whether it's educational, medical, or hospital, those weren't really available to him. Even in the cases where one might say they were available to him, that he did not fully take advantage of them, I think one has to understand the level of distrust and disappointment that young people like Kazbek endure throughout their lives, where the promise of transformation, the promise of affirmation and care can sometimes be illusory or temporary. And I think in the case of Kazwick, he needed and he needs still holistic uh, response to what he has endured his entire life since childhood. The reason for trauma in Kazwick's life had been building for years. So consequently, it would take not necessarily the same number of years as Kazakh's been alive, but it takes some degree of time for him to fully understand his experience, to appreciate it, and then begin the journey of, of healing, of transforming the narrative in which he finds himself now. I personally always love to report on solutions and things that are working, and I really appreciated that local organizations were a big part of this story. I also wonder how many of these are solutions that can have a greater impact? Where do you think the hope and the fix and the solution fits into this bigger story? I don't think there is one solution or one fix in the case of an individual like Kazwick Navarro. I think there are a lot of many solutions which addressed different aspects of his trauma, of, of, of his instability and instability in his life. Um, his housing insecurity, his food insecurity, his persistent joblessness, him being a distant father, though present in the lives of his children, his grappling with and struggling with self-medication stemming from the trauma he'd experienced in childhood. All these are, are very, you know, very complex issues. And I think as, as you'll see, as you read his story, there were and still are organizations and individuals in his path who, for a period of time, supported him, who gave him what, him, what he needed it over a certain duration of time. But I think the largest solution really is one that may not exist yet. I think what's ultimately demanded, which we're moving towards now, slowly, slowly, is a national conversation about mental health. We still stigmatize it in a way that, regardless of one's racial background, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status, any concern around mental health is is almost forbidden. Um, We don't talk about it. We uh, mystify it. We shame those who struggle with mental health issues. And for those populations of people who are historically disenfranchised or disempowered, I think there's even a a greater repression, uh, a greater opposition of talking about mental health challenges. Make sure to check out the full article in Vice Magazine or at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.